The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. Wait, wait. I thought we'd try and break out uh, the conversation uh, about the future of healthcare into three different categories. Partly because we only have 15 minutes left, and and uh, it might make it easier. I thought about talking about uh, delivery uh, costs and technology. So just trying to bucket things into that way. Because I, I think we might be not honoring all of the all of the things that the two of you know, um, and Chris knows if we didn't at least uh, spend the time to not talk just about hospitals or to not talk about pharma or to only talk about reform, but to talk about where you really see the future of different things going. So open table, we can switch. We don't need a reason to to switch. Steve, if you want to take a right turn when all of us are going the other way, take it. <laughs> and, and John already does that with me. So, um, so, so Chris, where do you want to go first? <laughs> this is your, your well, question to select on the Jeopardy board. Well, I think um, what the specialists we have are probably most practiced in anyway is delivery. So the the real thing I think about is um, in the, the current world of healthcare delivery, what is changing? Is there any disruption, or do you have you all seen any other models, whether it's in uh, Nigeria or somewhere else, that might uh, offer us something different? From my desk as an investment advisor, I mostly just see the mega mergers. And even in the VC world, I was saying to Neil earlier, most of what's getting funded are new insurance companies, which does not seem all that disruptive. But again, um, it would be great to know, you know, there've been so many hospital mergers, over 1,400 in the last 20 years, and this, these seem to be combinations of greater strength, but also greater intractability. Um, so yeah. So so it's interesting you you mentioned the uh, you know the insurance companies as the you know the, an interesting place to start and I think it's important for all of us to kind of understand you know or, or think about the fact that you know insurance is really a, a risk management tool and that it's a man you have how how do we manage the financial risks associated with overall cost of care delivery and so. I think that as we look at this, you know, the history of insurance in the United States really kind of took root uh, coming out of World War II as a, a, a way of kind of adding additional benefits into worker, uh, workers' compensation packages. And how do we, how do we pay workers uh, as, as wages uh, become fixed, and so there was some there was price fixing uh, or, or wage fixing that existed uh, during World War II as a way to kind of keep uh, costs down during the war effort. Uh, but labor was in such a tight supply that insurance became a tool that shipbuilders and airplane manufacturers and people who were building tanks were using to recruit new workers into their workforce. And it really kind of uh, grew out of that uh, that process as a a, work, a benefit uh, to workers in this country, at least. Um, and so, it really, has not been necessarily aligned with uh, delivery. And so, the evolution of delivery processes has, in many ways, been 
separate but parallel in comparison to the evolution of the financial vehicles by which we finance uh, healthcare delivery. And so the, the challenge with that has been one of the consumer, the individual who's actually receiving the product uh, from healthcare um, is uh, has been insulated from the cost of it um, in ways that they aren't in other markets. And so it really has skewed uh, the markets in that way. And I think it's probably one of the things that for us uh, on the provider side, for both Steve and I as, as physicians, you know, when I sit down and have a conversation with a uh, with a patient and they ask me, you know, what's the cost of this test or what's the cost of this treatment plan, I for the most part don't know and the patient for the most part doesn't care because they're not really actually paying the uh, the full cost of that process. And so I think the, the biggest trend that is going to potentially disrupt uh, healthcare in many ways is in some ways a return to or a, a much more traditional uh, consumer market, at least to some degree, uh, that we may have seen in a, you know, the pre-World War II sort of an era in the United States where people, you know, paid for a lot of their, their health care out of, out of pocket. And, you know, we're already seeing some of that with HSA plans and things like that. But I think that's a trend that is going to accelerate as the industry, the delivery side of the industry catches up with the ability of consumers to actually behave like consumers, the way they would shop for goods in any other sector of the economy that they currently are not able to now. And so, Steve, I'd be curious, you know, are you seeing that in your market as well, of the, the rise of consumerism in healthcare and in some ways the 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 return of insurance to being potentially more of an insurance-based product? Well, so there's a number of points that you brought up that, that I would add to and some that I might take a slightly different tack. So, so you, you, you know, you, you identified how the United States is a unique among first-world countries in having an employer-based insurance model, and it, it started World War II, just like you said, and then it was cemented during the Eisenhower era when they put a tax exclusion for employer paid premiums and, and and where I think the average American loses sight or just is unaware is in 2018, the United States government subsidizes private health insurance industry to the tune of greater than $250 billion a year in lost revenues because of that tax exclusion. And so a challenge with that is it, we have so many distortions in the healthcare marketplace, but that is an enormous distortion. And, and it has made it incredibly difficult to unseat that linkage between employment and insurance. It's it's as intractable or intransigent, whichever word you want to use, as the uh, you know mortgage deduction is in a different sector of the economy. And so it's distorted things. And I think you're absolutely correct that the substantial uptick, which really started um, you know back in '99, 2000, but is really accelerated now. Uh, of high deductible, high patient cost sharing plans with very skinny or narrow benefits and networks has created a, a new sort of consumerism. And, and so on all that, I would agree. I think where I would augment, and this could take us a slightly different direction, is that consumerism is not necessarily all well, well-informed consumerism. And so 
you already identified how the system is so opaque that neither the purchasers, the users, whether that be uh, employers or patients in some cases now that they're the exchanges, um, the consumers, which are the actual patients of the services or the providers of services, none of us have any idea what it costs. It all sort of gets tossed into a black box, spun around 50 times, and then spit out. And we're all very frustrated by that because no one really can be transparent, even though some would like to be transparent. But where I have a real concern is healthcare is so technologically advanced now, and there is so much complexity, and the ability to spend and consume so much resource so quickly is so easy that I think what will happen and what is happening is as we see utilization actually going down in inpatient days and hospital or ER hospital ERs in certain other areas is that consumers are just trying to avoid expense, but they're not necessarily avoiding expense wisely. And we may find that they are incurring more illness, more morbidity, more, more morbidity, I can get that word out, uh, and more adverse consequence than would be advisable. And that may be penny-wise prone foolish. So I, I think we're going to find ourselves over the next five to 10 years at, our, at another question point or inflection point about um, as the current political efforts try to unwind as much of um, what they would feel is an overly progressive um, liberal approach to healthcare finance um, and as the uninsured rate goes up, now capitalism has not yet found a way to provide universal health care for expensive poor people or expensive costly people. And so, or, um, so we have a real challenge ahead of us, and I think it will really challenge whether or not we have uh, can actually have a, a restoration of any kind of consumer market, or if the financing part of this has to be standardized in some other way. Hope that was clear. Yeah, no, and I agree with you completely there, Steve. I think the the interesting piece to that is the fact that when We've got, you know, technology companies, you know, Amazon and others trying to figure out how do I break into the the market in this way. The, the challenge of uh, consumers having the right information to make the right decision uh, is, is challenging. And I've heard people say, well, consumers make, you know, high-value decisions, you know, in other parts of their lives about, you know, cars and houses and other sorts of things, and they do not nearly research and all that to be able to just, it's not nearly as emotional, and it doesn't have the same level of consequence to it either, that, you know, if I make a choice, um, you know, the, the, the classic individual, I think, from that perspective, who we could, you know, do our own case study on in some ways is Steve Jobs, and the decisions that uh, very you know, highly educated, uh, intelligent individual made about his own health care and the decisions that that and potential consequences of what that had on his life uh, were significant. And I think uh, as you uh, look at individuals making choices about uh, different types of surgical interventions or cancer treatments or do I go with, uh, you know, choice A versus choice B, when even for well-educated clinicians, it's sometimes not an easy, um, you know, A versus B sort of choice. Um, you know, I think it's, we're going to be challenged with the consumerism uh, piece to this, and it'll nip around the edges, but it's going to be 
um, some time, I think, before it truly has uh, has the type of impact that uh, some economists may hope that uh, that a, a, a true market-driven uh, healthcare system would ultimately result in. You know, no, if I can jump real well, go ahead, Neil. Oh, I'm going to try and take a left turn on you, Steve. So you can always well, well, let me real quick. Let me jump in before you do the left turn. I think the private health insurance industry is a great example of a wickedly expensive value eroding proposition. I, I think if you look at the big five national, you know, the biggest five national health insurers, I think they they extract a, a healthy premium to support their their substantial margins and provide scant value in return for it. And I realize that they would dispute that, but I disagree with them. And I think that now that we have so much consolidation in terms of uh, larger employers, you have consolidation in terms of larger providers of care, um, the aggregation of risk is not done as well now, I think, through those large insurers who are really just trying to diminish their medical loss ratios in order to preserve their margins. I think, and, and most, most or many of them have already started to describe themselves as population health companies, not as health insurers. I, I think I think the, the actuarial function and the collection of premium and dispersion of risk function that insurance provides in healthcare, I think can be done other ways and, and much more cost effectively. And so I would, I would love to see over the next 10 to 20 years the complete disappearance of, of those private health insurers and see instead um, the actuarial function, which is still important, um, outsourced or brought in. I don't think most people bring it in-house, but outsourced if you're a, a large um, health system or a national or a big regional health system. And the apportionment of risk, when you already stop, talk about ACOs and value-based purchasing, that, that risk is starting to be foist upon the provider community anyway. So if the provider community gets large enough and can provide a rich enough portfolio of services. If they're taking on the risk, they might as well pull in-house the actuarial function and then just have the premium collected another way. And so I'm not sure the private health insurance provides anywhere near the value uh, in our society to justify the premium they take. And I think that's where you're seeing the... Well, and so I'm curious. I think like... that's where you're... <laughs> I'm going to take the ball, John. <laughs> we, um, so I'm curious, do, do both of you think within 10 years, just based on the announcement with Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway, that we'll start to see, you know, a, a hospital that they've built where they at least start to um, cut out uh, both the insurance company, run their own actuarial tables, I'm sure, with some great AI, because it is Amazon after all. Um, and, and actually has the risk management in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, I don't remember the exact statistics, but you know, um, Berkshire is like the, or roughly the 13th largest company in the planet. Um, JP Morgan Chase is, you know, like the sixth largest bank in the world. Um, two and a half trillion dollars assets under management. Um, and then when you take Amazon, largest retailer in the world, um, or I think it is, um, no, you no, have these, no, no, not yet. Okay, we're close to it now. So it's getting in there. The delivery model is so innovative. I think. I think here's the here's some challenges with the delivery. Here's the opportunity and the challenge, kind of both together. So, the opportunity is healthcare is so inefficient right now, and despite a lot of really well-intended people who are really smart and well-educated, it's actually inaccurate a lot of times. And so, one of the things I find absolutely amazing there's a there's a book called Rise of the Robots. It was published in 2015. Um, 
kind of explored what happens with big data, artificial intelligence, and what does it do to our consumer-driven economy um, when so much of what we do, if your job can be reduced to an algorithm, then you probably can be replaced by a computer in the near future. And so if the scientific method has a lot to do with cause and effect. You, you, You build a theory, you collect data, and you test your theory against the data, and you see if if you're right or you're wrong. And that's how doctors approach patients um, every day in the United States. And I know as an emergency physician, as much as I try to be correct, the opportunity for error is just too great because there's too much that the human mind can't know. Well, if you have a large enough data set, you no longer have to know causation. Correlation is sufficient. So if you can take a big enough data set and say every single time these three items are present or these three conditions or terms or symptoms are present, this diagnosis is also present, you no longer have to understand do they cause each other. You just have to know every time I see one, two, and three, X, Y, and Z are also present. And so with big data and artificial intelligence supported or deep learning supported um, use of that data, it could be real possible. And I don't, I don't, the time frames I'm a little fuzzy on because it's what people will accept, not only what can be done technologically, I would say over the next 10 to 20 years, we absolutely could find ourselves in a situation where a conversation between uh, a human clinician and a patient are recorded or a patient just enters by verbal, you know, natural language and then has natural language processing and an extraction of that data yields a differential diagnosis that gets us much more rapidly and much more accurately into the appropriate ballpark for a final diagnosis. And all of those things are incredibly threatening to the status quo. It certainly runs the risk of making a lot of what I do irrelevant. Um, it, it also has the prospect of making a lot of what I do much more accurate and, and better and efficient for the patients. But so you talk about transformative and disruptive. I, I would say that would be about as disruptive to healthcare as um, immunization, sanitation, running water, you know, has been to public health. Mm. But I think, and I, I don't disagree, Steve, but I think the, 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 the thing to keep in mind as we look at artificial intelligence and look at the process is I don't see the, you know, the tech companies and the, and the technologic solution replacing the bedside clinician uh, because at its core, there's a certain level of human psychology uh, and the, the level of being able to provide empathy uh, to the patient and understand what it is that that patient and that family and that individual are looking for, whether it's in wellness prevention or treatment to a particular disease process and whatnot. There is so many other layers of emotion and psychology that uh, kind of trump often the logic behind what should or should not happen in a given situation that I think there's always going to be a role for a translator some in some way between the big data and the artificial intelligence uh, and whatever whatever interface that looks like and what actually is getting applied at the at the bedside at the at the patient care level and um, at least in my career I'm not too worried about getting replaced by you know a, an avatar of some sort you know in a in a virtual reality sort of a space but I think an augmented reality sort of a of a process where where you take what machines and and computers do well and in terms of speed of processing and pure computational power that 
a human clinician can't can't touch, and then being able to apply that uh, at the bedside and having having it interface with and and augment that human touch is going to be really where that that place of you know where those technological intersections meet. But you know, you're going back to your questions about you know Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and, and Citibank all kind of you know joining forces. I think there's a certain naivete uh, to the, the psychological underpinnings of uh, healthcare that drive many of the inefficiencies within the current healthcare system. That it will be interesting to see how they navigate uh, some of those processes because I, you know, I. I would never bet against Amazon and, and uh, that as an, as an organization, but I there's this part of me that suspects they're going to run into a, a significant amount of uh, challenge and losses, and may walk away from this endeavor and just say, "Hey, this is this is too much of a morass for us to really make a margin on and move on to something lower hanging fruit, so to speak." So then so, I have a John, question for Neil. For, oh, well, for Neil you can ask a question. So let me let me ask John the one quick question, sure. a very quick question. John, I, I just want to know if you've gone to work for a lobbyist group making sure doctors keep their jobs with the raise, rise of AI. Just, do you mind? Do you mind just just closing? The anesthesiologists need you, John. <laughs> no, no, that 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 is that is my job, not mine. <laughs> no, but you 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 touched on a question. I want to. I, I think this is a great great point. So, so I, where we can get from Chris or Neil a different perspective, because I agree with John, actually. Just, John, actually, what you said is another side of the coin that I explore when I get presentations regularly is there's a, there's a, there's a human component to this, right? So if you just are agnostic about it and it's just business-minded, you, you want to provide the most efficient service at the greatest scale possible. And, and you want to extract a profit for doing that. And, and I, the bigger the profit, the better. It's America. God bless capitalism. But, um, but the challenge is that people still are really as amazing as our biologic machines are. They still have their limitations. And, and part of that is or strengths, depending on how you look at it, the emotional connectedness we have to have with each other and part of the journey. So I agree with you entirely. But one of the things I think our physician colleagues don't get exposed to, and I, I think all four of us have been exposed to, is when you go to um, when you go to a, a tech firm, when you go to a startup fair, uh, you see early entrepreneurs innovating to create a solution to a problem. Um, not that they're inhumane; I don't mean to imply that at all. But they're not there for that focus. They're there to solve a problem. How can I? Um, get you an accurate diagnosis faster, cheaper, better, and make a margin on it. How can I find an answer to a question more quickly and more scalably um, or more accurately? They're solving discrete problems a lot of times. And and so I don't think um, industry is particularly concerned about preserving our human component of it as much as they are about how can we drive down costs. And one of the things I do have a concern about is um, – when, when you look at some theories, it's about driving down the unit cost or the input cost, a big part of which is the human resource component, like it is in any industry. And that's physician salaries and nursing salaries and all the other people's salaries to drive that down. And I think that's the battle that, that's happening right now with the slogging it out between health insurers and providers, whether that be facility or, or, or um, individual clinicians, 
So I guess what I would ask for, for Chris and Neil is, you know, I mean, to people like John and me, because we're docs. I mean, I go to the bedside and I touch patients and I try to help them and I console them. What do you, how do you guys see it, you know, this future of delivery transformation in an effort to contain cost? And is that going to be preserved or if we can automate it all? And it's like Star Wars and you got that little robot that helps you Skywalker. <laughs> is that what it's going to be like, you know? Yeah. I, um, I struggle with this question even just in a general sense, like is taking Amazon again. Robo-advisors. Robo-advisors, yeah, right? Robo-advisors <laughs> in my business. Is there some way that we become too machine-like inefficient? Um, you know, this was uh, William Faulkner's diagnosis about uh, national socialism in Germany. He said there's no question that that machine will ultimately be suicidal. It will bring about its own demise, you know, uh, too efficient, too scalable <laughs> until it consumes itself. So there is the, the, the aspect, even in something as, as seemingly straightforward as retail, where we as humans need community and we need that sense of support. And there's no question um, why placebos often work. <laughs> it's because of the spirit and the support and the energy and inspiration that humans get from one another or from a belief um, in something that's bigger than them. So that component of healthcare and delivery still has to exist if we're going to get the absolute best outcome. Well, I agree with you I, both. And I'll second that too. I, but, I think what we'll see some tricorders um, that you can walk into a little like an elevator, um, we're still going to need humans. They're meant to augmented reality or uh, all of the deep learning, all of these things are, are meant to give insight to humans. They're not necessarily meant to give more insight to, to more computers. Yes, computers can maybe figure out care pathways and based on the three things you're seeing can diagnose 10 more given time. But we're still going to need, uh, we're still going to need one of you guys on the front line. Um, and I think, to, in the ER to, to make sure everybody's okay. I don't well, think I that think, those things alone are good enough. Yeah, and I think if the market is more consumer responsive, as uh, you've mentioned, Steve, that that would be the demand. You know, PricewaterhouseCoopers Healthcare Research Institute, I think most consulting firms have their own healthcare division, um, but they did a uh, survey in 2015 and you know, consistently, um, you know, maybe consumers are somewhat ignorant of the workings of healthcare, but they sort of know what they want. And 88% of them said that they would um, prefer to, you know, they would prefer convenience. Going to retail clinics and et cetera are, you know, would be better for them than going to um, big, large or organizations or hospitals. And I guess no one really voluntarily wants to walk into a hospital, but... Because <laughs> you haven't been to John's Hospital in Issaquah. If yeah. you go to John, the so, hospital John designed in Issaquah, you'll think differently. But I agree on all the rest I've been to. Yeah. yeah. Chris, I think no, you, and I I think would, you Well, I was just saying that I think what we say we want and then how we behave are not always consistent. And I think you've identified that. Right. Because people say they want human touch. They say they want choice and physicians and facilities, but when the choice comes, the, the the single strongest driver generally is price sensitivity, right? So when people purchase insurance plans, it is easier to understand it's going to cost 
250, 350, or 450 a month for the premium, and while 250 looks better than 450, then it is to think, well, it's going to knock out half the hospitals and two thirds of the doctors in my region for me that I can't use, or else my insurance doesn't cover them because I have such a narrow network. And so people are really price sensitive. And, and I think you also touched quite accurately, and, and there's generational shifts, right? So, you, you know, the greatest generation to the, to the uh, you know, uh, what am I, Generation X to the millennials or whatever the heck comes after the post-millennials, um, their expectations are different. And, you know, going to the hospital at 3 in the morning when you don't feel well, most sane people don't crave that experience. And so if they could just get on the on their little video thing, and, and go on their iPhone from bed, and if that were sufficient, I think John and I might say it's not sufficient more often than people think it isn't. But if they could just go and do that, then their their thing is like, hey, I wasn't looking to go have a great relationship with a triage nurse, a bedside nurse, and a doctor. I just wanted to get a prescription really? for my sore throat, you know. And so, so it's a matter of people. <laughs> well, I think well, we're all betting that Juno will probably help that out, right? <laughs> like literally, we're all betting on that. <laughs> Maybe well, yeah, we'll I mean, send the dad out to to you guys in the ER or to to doctors, so that way something can actually happen very quickly. Yeah, if you can do point of care genetic testing right in your own home, I mean, just think about the amount of technology being deployed at home, and if it's being made that that straightforward, that's incredible. And I think people want to be healthy and well; they don't crave to have experiences with interactions with the healthcare system. In fact, yeah, a true success for the healthcare system would be for it to recede into the background as much as possible and produce a perfectly healthy population at very low cost, never having to interact with them. Right? If we could just redesign our uh, living arrangements and, and, and social lives. But, um, John, you thought a little bit about like self-diagnosing buildings and we've seen some interesting technologies come through Zoic. Do you mind just weighing in a little on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting as you look at, you know, how people live their lives. And I think Chris, you touched on it uh, a little bit there with the, the talk about retail medicine and whatnot. I think one of the huge trends, irrespective of who's driving it, that's going to be happening and that technology is facilitating is that uh, we are, there is going to be a decentralization of healthcare delivery. It is going to be moving closer to the individual in their home. And that, you know, technologies and systems that at one time required extended stays in the hospital are now shifting into outpatient clinics. And what was happening with, you know, in outpatient clinics is shifting to the home with telemedicine and whatnot. And we're very much in our infancy of figuring out the right way to deploy those technologies. And the technology continues to evolve fast uh, in that piece. And so, you know, as I think about uh, a lot of this world is that the you know, we spend as much as 90% of our lives indoors and inside the built environment. And so the interesting piece becomes from uh, a technology perspective and then for us uh, in, you know, on an investment side of, you know, an investment perspective is what are the technologies that get embedded into the environment around us that allow it, allows healthcare to behave, you know, just as Steve described as something that just kind of blends into the background and takes care of us without us really having to think about it. And 
obviously the Internet of Things and, you know, the arise of these, you know, digital personal assistants at home, whether it's, you know, Alexa or Siri or whatever flavor thereof is, you know, is still really kind of just becoming at, at where it's at the very foundational levels of this becoming more and more embedded into our lives. And I think healthcare is going to become, you know, relatively more interesting as we shift from a wellness or shift to a wellness focus from a disease-based model of healthcare that really was the focus in the 21st century or 20th century, 20th, 21st century model that has, uh, you know, precision medicine, you know, linked with, you know, uh, you know, a much more, uh, you know, kind of a passive sort of a process um, as we look at things. I mean, the classic public health types of stories of how do you start preventing uh, illness and injury really are ones, you know, where you look at uh, safety uh, devices in cars as a, as a, you know, an easy example that all of us can be aware of. We don't really think about the airbag that's in our car or how the the highway was better designed to allow for, um, you know, kind of improved uh, safety in the guardrails and whatnot. But those types of uh, design innovations and technology innovations that exist uh, have dramatically uh, improved uh, morbidity and mortality around automobile crashes. Um, and I think in a similar way, a, a passive sort of a system that's embedded into the built environment around us that both collects data about our individual uh, lives and individual uh, behaviors and then modifies uh, the environment around us in terms of things like air quality and lighting and sound and all of the various sorts of stimuli that are coming into our lives that impact our health, whether we realize it or not. And being able to tune the environment around us to optimize health is a really fascinating area of where uh, healthcare uh, can be moving. Mm-hmm. Well, think, think about. I, I would consider this. I don't know if non-threatening is exactly going to be the case, but what I would consider a relatively non-threatening thing. So, so take that collaboration with um, uh, Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and um, Berkshire Hathaway, and and take wherever, I don't even know if it's, I don't think it's been announced, wherever Amazon lands its second big headquarters. And, and so pick a city, I live in Kentucky and Lexington. So say say you put uh, Amazon here and they went to the University of Kentucky Medical Center and they said, look, um, we want to really expand and build out telemedicine as a way to diminish cost, increase convenience, and provide better results. And, and you use Amazon Web Services, you use a telemedicine platform. Uh, say you just did it with Amazon employees. We've got a um, distribution center here. So say between the headquarters and the, the, the uh, warehouses, you had, anytime an Amazon employee came in, if they had a need, you had an inventory of things like a Bluetooth scale, if you had CHF, uh, cardiac rhythm monitors, um, whatever, an iWatch, um, if needed for heart rate or, or, or things like that, or um, you know, a glucometer or a blood pressure cuff, Bluetooth enabled, and you had a kit and you sent them home with a kit like that. And if you needed to, you had the home health person show up and set up a Wi-Fi uh, network in their home. Now, I know this sounds kind of a little bit crazy, but really the, the cost of doing some of this stuff would not be that outrageous. And most people already have their own Wi-Fi. So if you just set someone up with that, I think there's been some health systems that have demonstrated that the faster you have a patient post-discharge see a physician in the office for a recheck or a clinician, 
the lower the readmission rate is. And, and, and I saw someone present data. Um, it's going to split me what city they were from. Um, just this past weekend at a gathering that said if it happens within three days, five days, ten days, there's almost a linear correlation to the readmission rate. It's lower if you get seen sooner after discharge. Well, you know, a big barrier for particularly for an infirm population who has difficulty is transportation, getting out of the house, getting to an appointment. Well, a lot of times it's not necessary. If you have a CHF patient who can send in information on their heart rate, blood pressure, and their daily weight, you could have technology monitor that, but you could also have a live person get on a video stream with them, ask them, how are you feeling? And if the person is having trouble breathing, trouble with mobility, intervene on that a lot more quickly. Why do they really need to get in a car and drive somewhere for a post-discharge day two visit? I think there is a company that does that called Alir. But not enough. It's clearly not at scale, right? It's yeah. clearly not widely well, it's at prevalent. scale, but it's not as widely known as it should be probably. Yeah. Uh, they got acquired a long time ago. Right. So it's not the norm. Yeah, there, there's a I number of things like that you know, could become more common. And I think if – think about this. Um, those three companies employ, I think, I looked this up earlier today, more than 1.2 million people. Just even within their own employee base, you know, you could, if you offered people, if you use these suites of services and, and use these tools, we will provide you no or low, low cost or no cost health insurance. We'll waive all your co-pays and stuff as long as you comply with the system and use these, these tools. Um, you could strip out a lot of cost and probably improve value. But the challenge is um, you'd have to have tight coordination and cooperation across, you know, large employers. It'd be hard to bring it to scale. And I think, John, you may have said it. Um, there have been countless people, companies, and governments who thought that they would solve the problem of universal health care or low-cost, high-value care in the United States. And there are more casualties um, uh littering the graveyard from people who thought they were going to solve it and failed. So uh, the odds are not in favor of a complete solution to the U.S. healthcare system, but the opportunity for very discreet improvements in large swaths of it, um, I think are really quite possible. Chris, I'm curious if you see it, you know, you look at this through a very different lens than, uh, than I do. Um, what, is the, what is the overall drag on the economy as a whole that uh, you see, you know, the cost of health care and the rising cost of health care, um, you know, uh, burdening the economy? If we could solve this, what's the, what's the net impact? I mean, I've heard, you know, statistics of, you know, huge percentages of the cost of a General Motors vehicle, for example, are is tied up in providing health care for, uh, for its employees and retirees and the pensions and everything else that are there. You know, I'm curious, if you think about it from an economic perspective, what is the, what is the impact of really trying to, from a, a scale perspective, of the, some of the things we're talking about here? Well, um, clearly the the healthcare system consumes a tremendous amount of our um, GDP. I think I was reading back in 1964 or so, <clears throat> healthcare costs, as counted then, were about five percent of GDP. Um, and I guess soon we'll get to we're approaching twenty percent. 
or so. Um, and all of, as I mentioned early in the call, the, the activity in my space and looking at finance and economics in the business world are um, these consolidations of size. There's not a lot of imagination there, except for some exceptions we see, like uh, I'm not sure yet, no one knows quite what Amazon and, and Berkshire and, and Chase are, are going to do. Um, but I think, of course, it would be a huge uh, benefit to the economy. Um, we could certainly buy more skates and umbrellas, <laughs> more stuff on Amazon, if we um, could reduce that uh, that that out-of-pocket cost for health care. Um, I don't know. It could be a flowering of humankind. You know, all of the the bodies stuck in insurance companies denying claims could write children's books or something. I mean, there's uh, there are many strains of this that uh, could probably benefit society, but the the cost is an incredible drag. Um, and I think that's a, that's a fundamental piece, uh, you know, for me, you know, from an economics perspective, is the you know, we're spending so much on healthcare in this country and arguably are getting so little value out of uh, what we, uh, for the for the spend. And, you know, that uh, the technologic uh, advances that we've got, uh, you know, are not always translating really into, you know, quality of life uh, moving forward and, and impact there. And so I think that's the, the interesting piece as, you know, we look at technology and, and you know, how do we drive, uh, you know, technical innovation in this space is that larger platform question of, of how do we, uh, how do we produce, you know, develop the technologies that are going to ultimately be uh, develop, increase the efficiency of the system, uh, and, but ultimately, you know, improve that value proposition that we're able to to uh, to be able to understand. Because you know, the, the I forget the statistics I saw recently exactly, but it was it was shocking to me as somebody was presenting the data on on the effectiveness of various uh, types of drugs uh, in a population. We see this, you know, you know, hugely in mental health, for example, of, you know, we, we don't know is, is, is drug A versus drug B going to be better for this individual person. And, you know, and we spend a lot of money and have a lot of waste in terms of the trial and error of some of our treatment uh, pathways. And I think that's the interesting piece for me uh, as, you know, been exposed to this space more and more over the last several years is the more effective we can be at the diagnostic process, the better off uh, we're going to be able to tailor the treatment and the more effective we're able to monitor the outcomes of the treatment, you know, the, the more likely are we are to get it right and ultimately drive down waste and cost. And there's this ongoing dynamic tension uh, between personalized precision medicine and genetics and all those sorts of pieces and the cost thereof and versus how do you apply that at a population scale. And to me, it's, it's that it's that value proposition that really is the, is the link between those two that allows us to think about um, how do we improve the entire health of the community or health of the population because each of the individual components is not spending a lot of money on treatments that aren't effective and they, they're getting the right treatment at the right time at the right price. 
Well, that's um, absolutely right, Steve. It's part of it. It, to me too, though, comes to a question of our collective consciousness. You know, I um, recently lost both of my parents, and there's a you know many have had this experience, and it's not the fault of the healthcare system, but I think you know back in 1964, 65, when I quoted that five percent of GDP was spent on healthcare. I mean, generally hospitals were were places you went to have a baby and to die. Right, you might have an appendix removed or something, but but um, you had surgeries occasionally. It was episodic, but now um, the idea is you you go there to be cured, to get well, to you see a medical professor. So you doctors are um, problem solvers first and foremost, and you know so much of our healthcare spend is at the end of life, for which there's really no cure. It's uh, just the cycle. Maybe this, John, is where the human touch is even more needed. Um, and, you know, we have to have a sort of change of, of mind to what is treatable and what's not. Um, I was offered a lot of solutions for my dad, who was really just dying, and a lot of them involved surgery, which was uh, ridiculous. But to me, <laughs> it was a ridiculous proposition. But to the hospital staff, the doctors there, they were trying to prolong a life and solve at least what seemed like an immediate problem, um, but just a, a minor degree of second-level thinking <laughs> would tell us all that these were um, really not the best suggestions and the outcomes were still not going to be really desirable. But our focus is on you know, fixing the problem. And um, I think very often that can be, um, you know, to, to, to doctors that every problem like that, the end of life, looks like a, a nail. You need the hammer to fix. Yeah, I think uh, you're hitting on, on a piece that I was trying to get <laughs> at a little bit uh, before with the emotion question. question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you're, you're hitting on the, on the piece where I guess what I was trying to get to earlier a little bit is the fact that much uh, so much of the decisions we make are not rational in healthcare, and they're you know arguably the most powerful emotion that we have uh, as humans is fear, and there's few of us who you know the fear of dying is a huge. Uh, uh, you know, it is our behaviors. Yes, that is the main one. <laughs> the central, exactly archetypal. And, and so, and whether it be fear of our loved one dying and losing that person who means so so much to us, or our own uh, impending death, and and you know, uh, Steve, I know it's probably experiences the same as I have. Of you know, it's oftentimes the family members who are more fearful of death of a loved one than the than the individual themselves uh, is in those scenarios, but it, there's so much of what we do in terms of treatment decisions that is driven by that emotional fear-based process. And that's where I think, you know, technology is going to be struggled to bridge that gap um, because we don't behave rationally or logically in those moments where we're making uh, healthcare decisions oftentimes. And, that's going to be the, the the challenge for us going forward is is how do we how do we bring data and, and technology to bear but recognize what those emotional drivers of the decisions are which even in the face of overwhelming data 
and logic that would tell you to go to pick, pick choice A, we're still going to take choice B. And that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, both the, the art and science of medicine at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it, 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 I, I think I find so much with which to agree. And I, I just, um, I think it's going to be challenging because the, you know, the, 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 pro- the, the process that has evolved over the, you know, the last century where, um, we've been able to automate things and we, I mean, just think about when, when, um, you, you've read these things yourselves, when, when Ford, you know, created Ford Motor Company and created a, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work or whatever the, the saying was he used and, you know, they had to employ, you know, these big companies, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to produce their products. Nowadays, you can have tech companies that can do so much and do it at such incredible scale that they don't need anywhere near the input of the uh, the workforce and, and anywhere near the size of the workforce. Well, this human component that I think you, that you've, John, I, I agree with you, and I think we've all sort of agreed that we fundamentally desire that, that human touch when it comes to things as intimate and as personal and as irretrievable as, as our healthcare if we get it wrong. But the reality is that there's a whole lot of stuff that now that the science has become as good as it has, and even with all the imperfections there are in it, there's still a whole lot of stuff that is, um, I think, ripe for innovation and and may innovate in ways that improve accuracy, improve efficiency, decrease cost, but don't necessarily preserve that human part of the experience. And I think that um, we find with doctors and nurses and other clinicians now, this newer phenomenon of what is really an accelerated rate of burnout um, because people feel more disempowered, less able to impact their environment as things have gotten bigger and bigger. Um, I think it's mirrored in a different way. I'm blurring a lot of different concepts here, but you know, we are argue, we are the most connected as a human race that we've ever been connected before. And yet, you see the incidence of depression and loneliness and suicide apparently on the rise. Um, we're, we're we're so connected, and yet we're probably not really connected. It's not the same kind of quality as having uh, gelato and an espresso in an Italian cafe with with your family and friends. So. Um, it, Really interesting times, um, certainly ripe for all sorts of innovation, um, for people who have the ability to see a different path or innovate. Um, to, there's never been more opportunity to do that, I don't think. Um, but for those in the legacy system and the patients accustomed to that legacy system, um, there, there's clearly going to be a lot of big change ahead. And again, I, I keep hedging just on this, the, the time frame. I just don't know that because Healthcare has been so resistant to change. It, it has been one of the last great remaining cottage industries for a long time. But I think we see consolidation happening now at a pace where it may be one of the last to fall as a cottage industry, but I think that the transformation is underway. Mm-hmm. And on that note, I think we're probably needing to end. <laughs> 